Galatians chapter 3 this morning is our text. Galatians 3. If you're using a house Bible, once again, that's page 973. Galatians 3. This is a letter of Paul to a collection of churches across the ancient Roman province of Galatia. It's been our study now for the last few weeks. And again this morning, Galatians chapter 3. There is a tactic of our enemy that is so subtle and yet so powerful that it can be described as nothing less than a kind of enchantment. Uh, A sort of trance almost, as if a person were put under some strange spell where a person is not in his right mind. Times when we are tempted to lose touch with reality, to believe a lie. Of course, the truth is that the enemy's tactics are not irresistible for those of us who are God's people. The problem is we are foolish. We are all too easily fooled by the subtle temptations of the enemy. We're slow of heart to believe, right? We are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. We are inclined toward the flesh. We are quick to turn our eyes off of Christ and onto our own works as if somehow we could justify ourselves before God. And it's a kind of witchery that the ancient Galatian Christians got caught up in, were in danger of falling prey to. And in our text, Paul peppers them with a series of rhetorical questions to try to jolt them back to reality. Take a look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing, by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit... Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham 
the man of faith. What kind of sorcery would it take to lead astray those who started off so well? And that was the case with the Galatian Christians. What would it take, Paul says, to move them who have heard the powerful gospel of Jesus Christ to move them away from that gospel to a self-reliance, a reliance upon the flesh. The Galatians had started out well. They had started out with a vivid perception of the cross of Christ. Notice verse 2. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Paul's central message, the central message of the gospel, the central message of the Christian faith is the cross of Jesus Christ. You know, there are a lot of people that are quick to talk about all of the wonderful things that Jesus said, that that he taught. And of course, those are very important. But sometimes the gospel becomes merely this. For In people's minds, the gospel becomes merely follow Jesus and be a good person like Jesus was, right? I mean, that's the message that's communicated in, sadly, a lot of churches. It is no more than a mere moralism, a mere kind of legalism. But the gospel has at its central the cross of Jesus Christ. This is an essential element of the Christian message. It is the the center of the Christian message. Christ Jesus came to die. Why did He die? Paul's answer is simply this. Christ died for what? Our sins. He died for our sins on our behalf, friends, in our place to suffer the punishment that we deserve for our rebellion against a most holy God. If we could justify ourselves by obedience to God and His law, then why did Jesus have to die? Why was the cross of Jesus Christ the central element of the Christian message? This is the Gospel. Christ died for sinners. He died in our place as an obedient, suffering servant of God for those who are disobedient and wayward. And those who put their faith and trust in Christ and in Christ alone have the forgiveness of their sins, the imputation of His righteousness to them so that they stand vindicated before God Almighty, not in themselves, but in the Lord Jesus Christ. This was Paul's message. This was the Gospel. And he said that when he came to them and he preached the gospel, he said, before your eyes, Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Which is not to mean, of course, that the Galatians were personally present in Jerusalem at the crucifixion of Jesus. But it is a reference to Paul's preaching of the cross. In fact, the words that that are translated in our Bibles as publicly portrayed, Christ was publicly portrayed, 
as crucified, that term is used of public proclamations heralded in the town square and posted up for all people to view. This is what Paul did when he came. He publicly proclaimed the significance of Christ, the significance of the cross. And when he did so, their spiritual eyes were opened. Christ was portrayed publicly. He was preached publicly as crucified, and he was seen. It was like when they heard the word, it wasn't just so many words coming to them. It was like they saw the crucifixion of Christ. It became vivid in their sight. Their spiritual eyes were open. They saw the glories of Jesus Christ and the wonders of the cross. You know what that's like? You know, remember what it was like when God first opened your eyes to see the crucified Christ in your place? When you saw your sin and all of its ugliness and you saw your sin was nailed to the cross and He bore it before the Almighty God, the wrath of God that you deserve, and you saw it, and you said, Lord, I see. That's what he said happened to the the Galatian people. Before your eyes, Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. How many times have I heard the word being preached, and the Lord opened my eyes, and my heart just said, yes, amen. That's true. That is a miracle of grace. Charles Spurgeon said, the Lord Jesus must display Himself to a sanctified eye. The great mass of this bleary-eyed world can see nothing of the ineffable glories of Emmanuel. He stands before them without form or comeliness, a root out of dry ground, rejected by the vain and despised by the proud, only where the Spirit has touched the eye with eye salve, only there is He understood. And that is what had happened with the Galatian churches when they first heard the preaching of the Gospel. And that's why... Paul is so incredulous that they could be tempted to be moved away from the cross. Moved away from it is finished. To be moved away from righteousness in Christ alone. How could this be? This must be some sort of devilry, some sort of enchantment to move you away from what you saw so clearly. And yet it is a temptation, not just for those ancient Galatian Christians, but it's a temptation today for God's people to become enchanted by a subtle but false perversion of the Gospel. And to move our eyes away from Christ and onto ourselves. This book is antidote for that. Now, for the Galatians and for for all of us who are tempted to fall into wrong thinking about the gospel, Paul makes two 
main arguments to try to bring them back. The first is an argument from Christian experience, and that's what we find here in chapter 3, verses 2 through 5. The second is an argument from Scripture, from the Old Testament, and that is what we find in verses 6 through 9, and in fact, it goes on really into the rest of the chapter and leading into chapter 4. I think this morning that we are really only going to have time for the first. That is, Paul's arguing for the gospel from their Christian experience. And he argues this way through asking them a series of rhetorical questions. Notice the first one in verse 2. In verse 2. Let me ask you only this, he says. By the way, that's a preacher for you. He says, I have one point. And then he goes on and makes about eight points. He says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, throughout history, it's not always been immediately and outwardly apparent when the Holy Spirit first falls upon someone with regeneration and conversion. But in the earliest days of Christ's New Testament church, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon believers was initially accompanied with great signs and wonders. So, for example, remember Acts chapter 2, right? Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. Peter stands up and he preaches the great sermon on Pentecost. And in that moment, you have these mighty signs from heaven. There's, as Luke records it, like an an incredible sound, like a rushing mighty wind that comes over the place. Then there's like flames of fire that come down out of heaven. And then finally, the... Apostles are given the miraculous ability to speak and be understood by dozens of people groups who are gathered for the festival in their own native tongues. The the coming of the Holy Spirit was accompanied by mighty signs and wonders very visibly. The same thing happened that happened with the Jews in Acts chapter 2. The same thing happens with the Samaritans in Acts 8 which uh, Samaritans, you know, probably are sort of half Jew, half Gentile, as it were. And then the same thing happens again with the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. Again, complete with signs and wonders, the Holy Spirit comes. All of this happened to show that God was doing something new. That God was establishing with His people a new covenant. That He was inaugurating a new Age marked by an unprecedented outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon all believers, upon Jew and Gentile, men and women, young and old, slave and free. Now, Paul's question is, did that happen by your obedience to the law? Or did that happen by hearing the gospel and simply 
believing. And of course, it was the latter. For the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the Gentiles while they were yet uncircumcised. And yet God gave to them the gift of the Holy Spirit, poured out in might and power. They were yet uncircumcised, much less obedient to all the rest of the law. So they received the Spirit not by works of the law, but by hearing with faith. And of course, he knows that they know this, and so now he wants to draw an implication from this in verse 3. The implication, after asking again, are you so foolish? He says, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You see the incongruity here, right? The Spirit of God came upon you, not by your works, not, not when you were following the law, but by the grace of God. Are you now going to be perfected through the flesh? God's grace of forgiveness, of bringing you into a part of His people, into the family of God, came at the beginning through the Spirit. It came... The Spirit came through faith alone. Are you now going to change horses midstream? Only as if you're only going to reach the ultimate goal of salvation through fleshly conformity to the Mosaic law? When Paul uses the term flesh, and he does it a lot, you know that, is one of Paul's favorite terms to use. And he he sometimes uses it with different nuances. But when Paul uses the term flesh, he generally has in mind a reference to you as you are by nature. You as you are by nature, rather than by grace, by the Spirit. You in Christ. And the Jews, of course... The Jews trusted in their natural descent from Abraham, their fleshly lineage, and in their external conformity to the law. Remember that Paul in Philippians chapter 3, looking back on his pre-Christ days, his days in the flesh, he was able to say, as touching the law, I was blameless. Right? There was a certain external conformity to the law of which he was very proud. And so it was for many of the Jews. There was a conformity on this sort of superficial level. And that, of course, is what the false teachers that were plaguing Galatia, that's what they were boasting in. And that's what they were demanding now of the Galatians if they would truly be Christians and be saved in the end. Submission to circumcision and to the keeping of the food laws. This superficial obedience was seen as the justification of themselves before God. But Paul says, listen, that's not the way you Gentiles started your journey of faith, is it? No, certainly not. It's not the way you saw yourselves at the beginning. 
It's not the way you received the Holy Spirit. Something's changed. There has been a subtle but significant shift in your thinking. And if you're a true Christian friend, listen to me. That's the way it was at your conversion too, right? You saw yourself a sinner. You knew you were an outsider from the grace of God, cut off from Him, unworthy to be considered righteous by any stretch of the imagination in His sight. I'm telling you, if you're a Christian, that's the way you felt. And but Now the danger is that as Christian people, for these Galatians and for us, the danger is to fall prey to a subtle but significant departure from that gospel of pure grace in Christ alone to unworthy sinners, to begin to boast in the flesh in sort of an external conformity to the law of God, a a righteousness that is subtly more based on my performance than upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. There, You you see, I, I think this is a perennial struggle for Christian people not to get sucked back into that kind of thinking. Now in verse 4, we have the second major rhetorical argument that Paul is going to make with the Galatian people from their own Christian experience. In verse 4, Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Now we know from Galatians chapter 4, verse 29, that Christians had been suffering at the hands of unbelieving Jews. They'd been suffering persecution. Uh, Saul himself, Paul, was uh, example, you know, exhibit A of this, and exhibit B. On the one hand, he was a persecutor of Christians. And on the other hand, he said in this very letter, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ as one who has been persecuted for the sake of Christ. And indeed, we noted a few weeks ago in chapter 6, verse 12, that Paul said that the false teachers were actually motivated in what they were teaching by a fear of the repercussions that would come from unbelieving Judaism. So Paul is asking the Galatians then this question. He said, listen, at one time you were willing to suffer for the faith. (laughs) You were willing to suffer for Christ at the beginning. Was all that suffering for nothing? Are you really going to turn your back on what you were willing to, 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 to be persecuted for? They're about to accept circumcision and to turn their back on Judaism. uh, uh, Turn back to Judaism, rather. Was all of that suffering as a Christian for nothing? I I think Paul argues here in a way that is similar to the way that the writer of Hebrews argues in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. Remember this, the writer of Hebrews says to his 
the people that he's preaching to, who are likewise, like the Galatians, are tempted to fall back into unbelieving Judaism, to reject Christ as sufficient for their salvation and to put their trust in the works of the law. He says to them, hey, recall, remember the former days when after you were enlightened, when you first were converted, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully, joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. That is the Lord Christ and all that comes to them in Him. And He chides them, He warns them, He admonishes them. Verse 35, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one, that is the just, shall live by what? By faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. That's exactly what the Galatians were tempted to do, right? To shrink back, to pull back from Christ, to go back to, to Judaism. But he says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And that was Paul's hope too. Even as he wrote to the Galatians with such stern warnings and such uh, frustration at their foolishness and being duped by this sort of false gospel, even while he's doing that, yet he has hope in uh, in the work of God in their lives. You see it in the end of, uh, of the verse, right? Verse 3, he says, if indeed, he said, did you suffer all that for nothing in vain? If indeed it was in vain. It's almost like he's saying, now I'm holding out the possibility that some of you are not truly the Lord's and 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 the real possibility that you could go back on Christ alone, trust and faith in Him. But he's also holding out hope that that's not the case for them. And then you come to verse 5 and you have this third sort of major rhetorical question. Take a look again at the fifth verse. And in the verse 5, he sort of goes back to the first question. It's very similar. But Now he's focusing, if you look at the verse, you'll see it. Now he's focusing on the present tense. Whereas earlier he talked about, he asked them whether their initial reception of the Holy Spirit was by works or by faith. Now he's focusing on their present experience. Verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith. And this is what he's been driving toward the whole time here. Does God's grace come to us because of our 
outward obedience, our performance of religious rituals, or does it come to us through hearing the gospel with faith? Which is the means by which God's grace comes? And remember that he's talking about our present experience. Not merely when we were first converted, but now. And the point is simply this, friends, that we continue in grace in fundamentally the same way that we first received grace. We continue in grace in fundamentally the same way that we first received grace. When we first came to Christ, we said, there's no hope in me, in myself. I have nothing. I have nothing but sin. And that's the same way we live our Christian life. To say, in me, that is in my flesh, there is what? No good thing. My hope now, today, in my Christian life, my hope is as it ever was, in Christ and in Christ alone. Not in myself, not in my flesh, not ultimately in my obedience or in my conformity to the law, but in Christ, by His Spirit, through faith. That's where my hope is. Right now, as a Christian, I'm trusting in the grace of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, now make no mistake, Christians don't settle for sin. Amen? Christians do strive to experience personal holiness. They long for Christ to be formed in them, to actually become more and more righteous. They know that faith without works is dead. That kind of faith is not a saving faith at all. The kind of faith that only says, I have faith, but has no works, is an empty faith. Or to say it another way, justification always leads to glorification along the path of sanctification. It's all God's work. You can't take a part of it and somehow miss out on another part. God's grace comes and works all of these things in the life of those who believe. All of it is by faith, by faith in Christ, not by works done in the flesh. I remember reading uh, quite a number of years ago now of some Christian guys, some young Christian men who had decided to get together and form a kind of accountability group. They were struggling with lust and pornography, and they decided that they needed to get together to help, you know, encourage one another to live rightly. And one of them came up with an idea that every day that went by in which one of them messed up, that he would put some money into a pot. 20 bucks in the pot or whatever it was. And every week then when they met, the money 
that was in the pot would get split up between the guys who hadn't messed up that week. And I want to tell you, friends, that that might be a kind of external obedience of a sort. But it's not sanctification by looking with faith to Christ. It's not the holiness that accompanies salvation. The ongoing work of God in your life does not come primarily by focusing on law, by just try harder, but by focusing on Christ, by seeing Him, by seeing His glory, by seeing His worth, by seeing Him more clearly to a greater and greater degree. It is seeing Christ that is the powerful Christian impetus of change in the life. What can strip the seeming beauty from the idols of the earth? Not a sense of right or duty, but the sight of peerless worth. Not the crushing of those idols with its bitter void and smart, but the beaming of His beauty, sweet unveiling of His heart captivated by His beauty, worthy tribute, haste to bring. Let His peerless worth constrain thee. Crown Him now, unrivaled King. Who extinguishes their candle till they hail the rising sun? Who discards the robe of winter till the summer has begun? Tis that look that melted Peter. Tis that face that Stephen saw. Tis that heart that wept with Mary that alone, that can alone from idols draw. That's it. That's it. When our eyes are full of the mercy and the goodness and the beauty that's in Christ Jesus, then then we will truly live a holy life from the inside out, wrought by the Spirit of God. The just shall live by faith, right? It's by faith from beginning to end. It is by faith that looks away from self. For that is the the nature of saving faith. Saving faith looks away from self and to the only object worth trusting, the only one who is righteous and faithful. The just shall live by faith in what God has done in providing Christ as our perfect righteousness. The just shall live by faith in what God is doing through the Spirit, causing Christ to live out His life in and through us. The just shall live by faith in what God will do, publicly vindicating us one day at the final judgment, just as surely as He as we have already been justified 
all for the sake of Jesus Christ alone. We live the Christian life by faith, just as we embarked upon the Christian life by faith. And we have to beware, lest, like the Galatians, having started in the Spirit, we seek to be perfected in the flesh. Lest we turn our gaze from Christ to self. This is a subtle shift from the Lord Jesus to a kind of legalism. And it can be so... It can rob a believer of the very power that is at the root of his sanctification, the very fuel that that causes sanctification to burn brightly. Oh, look to Jesus Christ, friends, not to your own performance. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, what do I do? Upward I look. That's what you have to do in the end. Yeah, yeah, you look inward. You repent. You examine. You confess. But then ultimately you look up. Upward I look and see Him there who made an end of all my sin. Friend, you, we are accepted. We are justified before God, not on the basis of our works, but on the basis of the cross. Horatius Bonner said, No gloomy uncertainty as to God's favor can subdue one lust or correct one crookedness of will. But the free pardon of the cross uproots sin and withers all its branches. It is by faith in Christ from beginning to end. Are we so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are we now perfected by the flesh? Make no mistake, friends, of course, true Christians strive for experiential holiness. But our striving is always rooted in the rest that we have in the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that rest, that being reminded again and again that we are perfectly and completely justified before God in Jesus Christ, that has a powerful, sanctifying effect all its own. A gospel power of sanctification as opposed to a an external power or constraint to conform us to a certain pattern of behavior. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 12. Paul there speaking of the holiness and the perfection of glory. He says this, take a look. (laughs) Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I, here, here you have it, all together, right here. I press on to make it my own, to achieve a greater experience of holiness. I press on toward that to make it my own because 
Christ Jesus has made me his own. Amen? That's gospel-powered sanctification. I press on, and I do. Make no mistake, it's, it's work, it's labor to grow in holiness. Give all diligence to add to your faith virtue and knowledge and all of these things, right? Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. I press on to make it my own, but I do so knowing that Christ Jesus has already made me his own. It is his finished work that is the foundation for my pursuit of the experience of that grace and that work in my life. In 1 John, John says something, I think, similar. I just love it. This verse my mind goes back to so often. John chapter 3, verse 1, uh, 1 John, he says, now look, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Amen? What a blessing. Those words, Spurgeon preached a whole sermon on those words one time. And so we are. Just those four words. What a great thing. We are the sons of God. How in the world are we children of God? We sinful, rebellious creatures. The answer is by union with the Son of God. By God's grace to us in bringing us into faith union with Christ, we are the children of God. God. Verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, but what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as he is. This is our glorification. This is yet future. This is when we finally experience what we're striving for right now, which is perfect personal holiness of life. When he appears, we will see him and we will be like him. In Christ, God has told us, friends, listen, in Christ, God has told us what we are and he has told us what we will be. And that, that telling us and believing what he says about those things has this effect. Look at verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. That's the effect that this kind of faith has. It has a purifying effect in the present. The Christian life from beginning to end is lived by looking in faith to the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. We sing a hymn sometimes. We have looked in faith to Christ, beholding God's atoning Lamb. He For our sins was sacrificed, thus we, though dead, have been born again. We still look, we still look each day to Christ, and by the unveiled view are changed. The Spirit wields the truth with might, conforming us to the Son unstained. We will look one day 
on Christ when He appears triumphantly. That blessed hope now purifies till seeing Him, we like Him will be. Jesus, Your beauty fills our eyes. First looking, we were justified. Now gazing deeper sanctifies till face to face we are glorified. It is the grace of God at work from beginning to end through faith from beginning to end in Christ from beginning to end that is our hope. So brothers, sisters, you who are walking in the faith, keep your eyes on Jesus Christ. Christ who is your life, who is your righteousness, who is your hope and who is your joy. Keep your eyes on Christ, who is your eternal boast. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You would use these texts to keep us fixed upon Christ as our anchor. Having begun in the Spirit through faith, we pray that we might not go off and seek to be justified in Your sight by our works. We pray that You would keep us always and ever anchored upon the Lord Jesus, that our works would flow as fruit from that union with Christ. Lord, let it be for Your people here. I pray now for anyone who is really struggling with sin. Lord, some of your precious children are sitting right here, right now in front of you. And have really, really been just dealt a a hard blow this week, spiritually. They've been knocked down. They've been deceived by the enemy. They've followed their own passions. They've been disobedient to what they knew you wanted them to do. Father, on these struggling people, we ask that You would lift their eyes and help them to see with new, clearer vision that their righteousness is Jesus Christ Himself. And I pray earnestly and sincerely for them that they may come to experience a Spirit-wrought, internal change of heart that will manifest itself in a change of behavior and change of life. Lord, Your Word's at stake. Your Gospel's at stake. Please vindicate Your Word and cause this to be the case for those who are Your children, we pray. Keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus. He is our boast, O Father, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.